Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... As easy as pie? Sure. All you have to do is enter your license plate or VIN. As easy as a stroll in the park. Okay, then just answer a few questions and you'll get a real offer in seconds. As easy as singing. Why not? Schedule a pickup or drop-off and Carvana will pay you that amount right on the spot. As easy as playing guitar. Actually, I find that kind of difficult. But selling your car to Carvana is as easy as... Can be. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get an instant offer today. I'm not glamorous. I'm not this created pop star. Fortunately, I don't have this image that I have to live up to. There's always an element of either melancholy, I think must be awful, that has to be put right through creativity. Art, it can save me. Often it's from these darkest, bleakest periods. It's, it's magical, really. I don't know whether it can save humanity. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Well, it's lovely to see you, Anne Clark. It really is. And you, Steve. English and I'm going to start with something, and I'm sorry to say this, but I'm going to start with something that sounds a little facile, but it isn't. And I really want to ask you what you have done so far today, because we're at 12 o'clock, just two minutes past 12, and I just wondered what you've done today. Today I have written in my journal and I have walked my pet dogs. All right, okay. The reason I ask that is because you've been through a very difficult period because of having cancer. And I presume by having cancer, you reassess your whole life and you look at your life and you think differently about it. Can you tell me how you now think differently and what does every day mean to you? Wow, yes. I mean, it's been a huge 18 months. I mean, not just for me. Um, I mean, I think for everybody, the whole world, you know, obviously because of the uh, COVID situation. I mean, everybody's lives were, were thrown into some kind of disruption, I think. But yeah, I got my diagnosis at exactly the same time as the UK, where I was at the time, went into lockdown. So it was a bit, yeah, it was very frightening and very terrifying and of course it's a diagnosis that none of us want but about 50 percent of us if not more are going to get you know at, at, at some some point in our lives so of course it was completely devastating and and exacerbated by the the covid situation but i had such a fantastic doctor and network of doctors and every i mean it was just incredible i mean that that lesson the first time in hospital that really made me re reassess everything when you had um the wards you know with maybe up to 30 40 patients all around these different units and and suddenly all the nurses except one being sent off to quarantine just in case because they'd been in contact to, with, with someone with covid and and this tireless way that they worked and how they they really worked it just made me like I think many people, you know, just realize who the real 
heroes and the real important people are. Um, but many people who know. go through something like cancer and come out the other side, they it's the reassessment that they have is the value of life to realizing Absolutely. that you only have one life yep. and yep. you have to make something with it. So I just wondered, were there specific changes that you have adopted because of that? Or after this amount of time, I presume you have an all clear now in a certain sense. Well, the I don't thing know if is, there can know, be There's really. never an all clear, you know? No. I mean, there's never an all clear. The, the doctors have told me, you know, it could come back tomorrow. And at the moment, I've got the all clear. So yes, it's taught me very much to live. I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but it's taught me to live every moment at the, t of a, at the time, you know, and not take any moment for granted or any day for granted, because I just don't know. Again, like none of us know, but, but when you've had that diagnosis, it's put really in front of your face. Um, I just don't know if something will happen again. So I really I mean, I've always tried to grab every moment and live every moment as fully as possible, but but even more now. So I think I must get on some people more <laughs> with my over enthusiasm, you know, for for the tiniest things and the the smallest things. Because as the saying goes, you know, take care of the the small things because one day they'll be the biggest things in your life, you know. And yeah, I've, tr I've tried to be more patient, which I find difficult, and I've tried to be kinder, which with the current political and world situation isn't always easy. But yeah, you know, whether you've got cancer or not, you're just a human and, and you have your reactions. And, and But yeah, I try to take a breath and then respond, you know, to things. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a writer today. I'm a screenwriter. And um, one of the things about when you write, obviously, as you know, is searching for your voice and searching for your voice. You're always looking event, at events in your past that, that, that formed you and had an impact on you. And um, one of my earliest memories is, and when I read about uh, your childhood, but one of my earliest memories is one of extreme anger between my mother and father when man, humankind, shouldn't say that, God, when humankind landed on the moon, um, this moment, the 20th of July, uh, was my mother's birthday. And oh. I all I remember it for is they had this massive fight. And my mother was, my father was a market trader and he used to throw money around the room. And it was a bit like East Germany. There would be pockmarks all over the walls. <laughs> like the aftermath of, of the war, still sort of scars everywhere. And um, and he was he could be he wasn't very often but he could be a very violent person and a lot of my memories are formed from the relationship I had uh, with my father and because you experienced a lot of anger in your childhood I wondered first of all how did that take place what were those events and how did that make you feel oh well I mean it's, it it went back as far back as I can remember to a tiny child you know to being a tiny child so of course you think it's normal it wasn't till I was older and went to school and and saw how other families behaved with each other that actually it wasn't normal at all so that was that was quite shocking and the thing is that anger really wasn't it wasn't processed through my parents with each other it they they passed it through the child through their children and would aim it at my brother and I 
so it was very violent and very aggressive and, and very changing. I mean, my mum was so volatile, you know, she would be the most funny, brilliant, charming, charismatic woman one second and then this monster the next second that would would just throw, yeah, throw you down, throw me down the stairs, fight with my brother till the police, the neighbours called the police, and and it was just horrendous. I mean, and and completely destabilizing, but maybe like you, that's how I ended up writing and found such refuge in, in uh, music and books and film and anything. You know, fortunately I had my little bedroom and that was my haven whenever it could be. And yeah, there I discovered the whole world of, of music, books, writing, yeah, another world altogether, which, which was wonderful, but it was quite a hard way to, <laughs> to discover it. Did you feel very isolated at that time? Because that's the feeling, I mean, I used to sit in my room as well. And uh, my outlet was more music than, than yeah. anything else that I would really dive into. I mean, you know, things like Bowie and so on and so forth. But I mean, it was those, it was that, that was really my, my outlet in, in that area. Yeah. Um, but how how did that make you feel? Did it make you feel isolated as a as a? Well, yeah, person? I get. That. I mean, it's quite funny in a way now looking back on it because going to school, you know, being 11, 12, 13, going through puberty, thing, and of course, along with all the other girls at school, I loved David Cassidy and I loved, um, you know, all the boy. But but I my my real heartthrob was Brian Eno and all these weird people, David Bowie, who of course came to be much more acceptable but all these kind of like weird weird musicians and you know all the kids at school would be listening to I don't know what would it have been then the Osmonds and the Carpenters and and I would come along with them um, you know Brian Eno's Here Come the Warm Jets um, album or um, um, Greenslade or or just totally obscure things so of course yeah that was that always made me a bit feel a bit isolated and yeah the situation did I mean one thing you just mentioned there was that you didn't realize what a um a normal relationship was because your parents didn't have a normal relationship I remember seeing the parents of friends of mine sitting on a sofa holding hands and asking yeah. this guy why are they doing that <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah it's incredible huh? I mean yeah, you can analyze it till till the cows come home, really. I mean, for me, yes, it was just this amazement of tenderness, that tenderness could actually exist between people. It was like, wow, you know, and you could see people like, well, you know, what what's what's the problem? It was just like, wow, people can be tender. And and I mean, I, you know, I'm painting this picture, but there were times, you know, my, my father was destroyed by it. And I'm sure my mother was destroyed by whatever caused this violence within them this emotional violence you know but um i just can't i just can't say oh it's all their fault and you know they were terrible parents because to be honest although we might have had friends who have got nice parents there's an awful lot of screwed up parents out there and i also came to realize that yeah actually my parents may have been very extreme but there are many dysfunctional families out there I think so. also we don't we only know things like this because of people like you who are honest or people you know like myself who are willing to talk about um those points and 
um, I remember that my father was a very absent father, even though he was there emotionally. Um, yeah. And that definitely had a massive impact on my life yeah. in the sense of, I think I looked for love in other areas in my life because of his absence emotionally. And um, I know that from my mother, she told me this uh, amazing story once where uh, he didn't want a third child and I was the third son. And right. he never had anything to do with me when I was young. Right. And that of course had a massive impact. And I just wondered also, because an absent parent does cause you to search for things outside yourself to replace that, what, you're, what you don't get from your parent. So yeah, I'm, I'm I wondered sure whether you know your whole life it. has been based on this search for love yes. that could be from an audience, you know. Yes, I and mean, I think many performers are desperately seek attention seekers, obviously. I mean, anyone who stands up in front of hundreds or thousands of people saying, look at me, listen to me, they're obviously searching for something. But again, at the time, yeah, my, my father was the same. He would leave the house at seven in the morning and wouldn't come home till 10 o'clock at night. And then at the weekends, he'd be in his shed or his garage the whole time. And it was just normal. It was just, oh yeah, dad's not, not there. You know, that's what he does. And of course, all the time it's having this influence in you, but I don't think I became aware of it until I was older, you know, and yes. And yeah, there's this constant searching, this, this looking for normality in a way, you know. Yeah, I mean, I just... Think, oh, when you're, when you're a musician or you're... Everything's like about ex excess and outrage and extreme. But this search for just normality, a normal evening meal together at the table, for me, is paradise, you know, with people just chatting and drinking a glass of wine or, or it's just like, wow, <laughs> you know? And... Yeah. yeah, I mean, the other thing is I, I ended up being on, on MTV and I think my search for love was to be on TV to get people to love me who I didn't know, but you don't get love. That isn't love. Um, so being on a stage isn't real love. It's the adoration of an audience or their, you know, their love of your music or whatever, but it's not actual real love. So did you yeah. also go through that point where you realised that what you were searching for actually wasn't the real thing and then you had to change away from that again not really so because one very important thing for me is that in my career and, and, and me as a person for me I'm very certain about it's the material it's my material that people get something from for whatever reason I don't know why I don't know why they like it I mean nobody was more shocked than me to be invited to go to Germany and America and and wherever to do my stuff because yeah I was just this wakey punky teenager and doing my stuff and so for me it's always been about the material and if I'm not interested really what people think of me or, or what they want to know because I'm not the I'm not the important element you know, I'm, I'm not glamorous. I'm not this created pop star. I don't have this, fortunately, I don't have this image that I have to live up to, you know, which is, I think must be awful for, for real, um, as we live in our celebrity icons, you know, that must be awful. But then in a way, I guess they, they like the superficiality of that also, perhaps, I, I can't say. So always it's the material and not, not, 
them loving me. Yeah, I, I think there was an element of actually being wanted, of being felt that I could contribute something to other people. I mean, there's sure. a universality in the themes that you're that you write about. So there, that's part of the connection. The other connection is, of course, you build this world with the music that we dive into. And so it's almost like we experience that alone, but together. Do you yeah. know what I mean? I think yeah. that's my experience of, of, of your music. There's, there's some sort of universality, but there's also some element of me being on my own within your world that is also my world. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the wonderful, beautiful thing about, for want of a better word, art, isn't it? You know, whether it's a book or a painting or a, a film or a piece of music. And that's the other thing that once I've done it, once I've written it, or it's not my, I give it out there and people can interpret it however they want. You know, when people say, oh, well, what is this text about? Or what is that? It doesn't really matter what it's about to me. It matters what it's about to, to them, you know. Now, there you are as, as a very young person in your room listening to Brian Eno. Um, but at that time, you were also going to school. And although I live in Germany, I was brought up in Britain and I went through the British school system. And my school system was a, an arts and sciences based school, all about passing, you know, your O levels, your A levels, the yeah. plus, whatever. And um, it was never about creativity in, in right. any form at all. And um, I always had a sort of hatred of the school system in Britain. And I, and I read in an interview that you also have that sort of, I don't know, hatred is such a big word, but you also have that sort of feeling about the school system in Britain. What was your experience in, at school and why did you feel that way? Well, it's interesting really. Again, it was quite bizarre my schooling because I went to the regular primary school up to and junior school and then at 11 we were all shipped off to the secondary schools and for some reason I ended up in this it was at the time when grammar schools uh, comprehensive schools had merged with gra uh, com uh, grammar schools and comprehensive had merged so I ended up in this very quite high level um, school in Old Coulston in Surrey so there was this immediate class thing to begin with because most of the other kids there were either doctor's kids or lawyer's kids or, and my dad was a paramedic, you know, so it wasn't quite the same league <laughs> as, um, as that. And also there was this real discrepancy between my ability with, for example, mathematics and sciences and art and literature. So I was like in the highest class for, for English and literature um, the lowest class for for mathematics and science because it was just something that yeah I didn't get and it caused me a lot of confusion and my teachers a lot of confusion I think and yeah maybe it's just you know I need a, a very late autism diagnosis or something <laughs> I'm not sure but there were only very certain things that I could really focus on and really be interested in to be honest you know physics and science and they didn't really mathematics I just wasn't interested in them you, you said you know about retreating to your room and listening to Brian Eno that what in a, on, a, on a positive sense what did your parents open you up to creatively or was there any creativity in the household well that's what's so bizarre is that you know 
at these very small periods, my mum would introduce me to classical music. She'd play, she'd have Mozart and Chopin playing, and she would take me with a friend of hers to um, the Festi Royal Festival Hall to hear a piano recital of Chopin or, or, or something that was like, whoa, where, where did that come from, you know? So she did, yeah, something inside her really could appreciate and, and love this very, what's the word, sensitive and, and um, creative essence in the world. But yeah, the rest of the time, it was just something else. But yeah, my father, I didn't see enough. So, I mean, he was a, I think he was a very smart guy. I mean, he, he'd been born out in India, in the Himalayas out there, and he could speak every dialect of Indian. You know, like when, if we go to an Indian restaurant or something, this tall blonde guy would start speaking Urdu or Punjabi or to the, all the waiters, and there'd be a, like a big party in the restaurant because of, of that. And I know that um, I think during the wartime, he was very much an active, you know, soldier in, in the war and yeah he traveled the whole world during from india to eventually the uk but um he never lived up lived to his potential and that made me very sad to see him get old and be as i say completely destroyed by this very strong very powerful but very negative woman ultimately which was was my mom you know when were you first exposed to poetry Oh, I don't know. Again, at, at school, of course, we'd have to read poetry, but the first poem that really made me sit up and read it thoroughly was a Charles Causley poem when I was about, how old would I have been? I don't know, 12, 13, maybe? Song of a Dying Gunner, it's called. And yeah, it just starts with this line, Oh, mother, my mouth is full of stars as cartridges in their tray, you know? And it was just like, what is that? What kind of language is that? You know, it was just like all these images and um, yeah, visualizations that, that came from the language. So yeah, I guess 10, 11, 12, something like that. Really. And that was a trigger for you to read more poetry. Yeah. And so where yeah. did you, I mean, when you're at school, and you're, yeah. I don't know, possibly then the only person <laughs> who <laughs> has that, I mean, I remember in, 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 you know, in English classes that poetry was sort of a throwaway. It was like something you won't, here's something you won't be interested in. And yeah. they, they'd already told yeah. us we wouldn't be interested in it. So well, we weren't interested yeah. in it at the start, which was a real shame because it took yes. years before I could come back and, and appreciate, you know, a, a yeah. great part of our culture. Yeah. That's it. The way it was taught or is taught even now, perhaps. I mean, who the hell wants to sit and listen to... Um, you know, Longfellow being read read by, you know, a 60-year-old teacher who's reading it like he's reading the telephone directory or, or something, you know, it's just, yeah, but I think pro probably now it's much more interesting for kids, especially with all the um, rap and hip-hop influences and, and stuff that's been going on for years now. I think, yeah, maybe kids, I don't know, I don't know. It's up to every individual uh, to to see what they want to see and hear what they want to hear. The Outsider has always played a, uh, a great role in popular culture. You know, um, 
I mean, you've, you know, because I was a Bowie fan, the only you got to listen to a Bowie album or the names of, you know, the alien, the outsider. Yeah. It's all about being some somewhere else and somewhere yeah. out there. Um, do you feel that that has played a big role in your journey as an artist? Well, I think you recognise it. Huh? I think fellow outsiders, whatever, recognise each other, whether that's possibly meeting in a, in a bar or, or um, reading a book or listening to a piece of music. You know, I think, yeah, it has to, to have an influence. I, again, I, I don't think it's something I try not to dwell on too much because it can make you feel very lonely and very isolated in a way. Um, yeah, it's not something to, to dwell on if, if at all possible. And, and of course, there are so many, many very isolated and lonely people out there who don't have any means of expression or um, ways of connecting, you know. Was that, that the experience that you had when you when you worked at the Cane Hill Psychiatric Hospital? Was that where that moment came, where you saw these people who were really on the edge of society, I presume? Um, and uh, and also, you know, the, 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 the track Cane Hill really expresses and puts you in that world. Um, and it is quite tough and quite moving and painful, I think. Um, and so I just wondered, you experienced it when you were working there and you went back because of your documentary. And I just wondered if you can talk about those two experiences and how, how it had changed over the years in terms of your view of it. Yeah. I mean, if there's one glorious part of my education and one thing I really cherish it was the fact that at this secondary school out in Old Coulston, which is where the what they were called then lunatic asylums were, Cane Hill was on the suburbs of London, this old Victorian building. And part of our social studies class was every few weeks was to, to, to go there as a class and assist in, in, in the hospital. I mean, I can't imagine that they would even consider it now, even allow it now, you know, I don't know with all the regulations and things, but we would go there, maybe 10 or 11 of us, and we would just sit with, with some of these people and talk with them and, and the initiative, whoever the teacher was or the, the part of the school was that initiated that, they deserve, I don't know what, because for me, that was the biggest education of my life to just go there and see, see these people, see, a man who was was then in his late 70s who'd been there as a young boy because he stole a loaf of bread because his his family was so poor or another woman completely institutionalized in her 80s because she got pregnant when she was 15 or 16 or something and just just put there um and yet it, to see this this fragility and this vulnerability of people and to have this ability to communicate with people, which I didn't have at home and to just listen and talk to them and, and them just being so happy just to be able to talk with someone and sit with someone and read a book with someone or have a bite to eat with them, you know, if you felt. But yeah, of course, <laughs> then the other extreme was in the hospital. They had very, very dangerous people in there, very psychotic and people that, yeah, you know, it wasn't too, which we shouldn't have even been around as kids really, but sometimes we did see that. And um, yeah, for me, it opened up a whole new world of, of understanding people or wanting to know about people. You know? 
Um, now, of course, Cane Hill is luxury apartment blocks. I mean, at the time it used to be, it was wonderful. I mean, they had a farm, they had their own farm where they would work and yeah, it, it was the most beautiful place. But of course, along with the, with the beauty, when I did go and work there for a while after school, there was incredible cruelty too from some of the staff. I mean, really wicked behavior. So that opened up another view of it. And yeah, a lot, then in the 80s, the Care in the Community initiative came, whatever that means. I don't know what that means. And they were all closed down. I don't know what happened to all the, the patients. But um, yeah, when I went there with Klaus to make the, the video, they cut down every tree, ripped up every beautiful thing. And, and they were now selling luxury apartments there. I think the energy and the ghosts there must be quite interesting for people <laughs> that are living there now when i talked to john watts the other week uh, from fisher's ed um he worked as a clinical psychologist and although he made a joke about it he he was he meant it in some truth that he said he used to um be with psychopaths in the day and be on stage with psychopaths in the evening and <laughs> I'm not going to ask you if you're a psychopath, but Probably. what I'm saying is that fragility that you mentioned and this feeling that you got from those people, I empathise with that as a writer, definitely, that pain um, and that sensitivity. So I just wondered that, is that what you empathise with more than anything else, that you felt part of yourself or saw part of yourself in them as a reflection it must be I think it must be Stephen I really think so I think it, it has to be that um this fascination you know with with these people's stories um yeah I mean of course there's this I mean when we were kids at the school coming out of the school we'd there'd be these horror stories you know and when the winter evenings and autumn evenings drew in and we'd have to walk past the hospital to get the bus home, you know, we'd all have this, ooh, you know, there's gonna be a mad axe guy waiting there at the bus stop. So you had this crazy imagination, this Edgar Allan Poe scenario going on. So it stimulated all kinds of things, but ultimately the humanity of, of the, the stories of the people there. And that's for me is the huge thing lacking and the, and the huge things we're distracted by with politics and consumerism when, if only they, our sensitivity towards each other could be nurtured, what a different world we would have, you know? Um, you and mentioned a bit earlier about finding your own people, finding people with similar interests, finding people who think similarly. Um, and uh, you were brought up in Croydon, I think. Yeah. I was brought up in Chelmsford, which is the Ooh. other side of London, also, <laughs> yeah. you know, both, I'm going to say it, both horrendous yeah. <laughs> little words, cities. Um, <laughs> and it took me years to find people who um, I could relate to at all. Where did you find your first clique? Cool. Well, was I it, guess... Was it, you... was it at the theatre, do you think? No, I think it was really with punk rock. I really think when that kicked up, because I mean, whatever, however abysmal Croydon and the surroundings are, it was really a, a cradle of creativity during the punk rock thing, you know? And I mean, this awful 
industrial wasteland there, but yeah, it produced and the energy that came up from that was was incredible. So it was really in the punk rock movement, I think. But I think more as it developed into a new wave thing with a little bit more creativity and a bit more thinking behind it. You know, there was this very powerful, destructive um, element that just pushed everything away, which of course, when you're 16 years old or something, you, you just fall in love with. <laughs> but then as it all settled, oops, sorry, dropping my computer here, as it all settled back down, um, yeah, these very creative elements came from it. And I found really I, what you call a clique, well, I don't know if that's the right word, but yeah, that group of people there that I could really relate to. Trying to grab all the groceries in one trip? Oof, not how you would have done that. You know sometimes less is more. Like when you drive less and save with the USAA annual mileage discount. USAA, get a quote today. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. I mean, you mentioned just a moment ago about societal problems today um, based on, well, based on money, I would say, is what you're, you're talking about as well. But in the 70s and 80s, for me, there was rampant homophobia, sexism, racism, misogyny. I mean, you name it, it was shit. <laughs> you know, yeah. absolutely yeah. Yeah. awful. Absolutely. And if you weren't part of that group that were in this, you were really uh, uh, an outsider and you really felt different. But, and then I think you've got to the core of it, that uh, punk and new wave came along and it provided a hook to be involved in if you weren't part of this other bigger group around you. Uh, that's the feeling that I had. Do you think that's part of it? And actually part of creativity is sometimes in the worst of situations, the best Absolutely. of creativity exists. I think, I think that, re- that re- is repeated over and over again, and not just on a societal level or political level, but in people's own emotional level too. I mean, it's a real cliche, but the tormented artist, you know, I mean, really, who, who has produced the most incredible artworks I think very often the most damaged and disturbed people it's not always true but I mean there's always an element of either melancholy or or something there that's that's not quite right that has to be put right through creativity or attempted to be put right through creativity I think I mean during that era I mean as a gay man who came out in 1977 you know when being, I'm going to call it gay because at that point it was called gay, LGBTQ plus or whatever, and being uh, in that part of society, you were you weren't even a human being really. I mean, it was terrible yeah. in the 70s. In the 80s, it got a little better, but you were well, still. Yeah, you you know, I was abused in the street. I was beaten up by police at one point, and to have that uh, happen to you, I I wonder if my experience was the experience of every woman in that era. Oh. How, how do you mean exactly, Steve? Because, I mean, well, you're talking about very direct violence, Sarah. And... No, you're okay. That's slightly different. But I think 
in in terms of well misogyny was so big i mean it was so rampant i mean if you look yeah. at if you look at the the police forces in the 70s you know yeah. it's yeah. really well documented now yeah. about how misogynistic they were society is yeah. misogynistic you know i never talk yeah. about never mind then it is yeah. today yeah. also misogynistic but back then the level of misogyny was so massive so high and i know that you know like a song wallies really you know gives a sort of hint to that um but i just wondered what it was like not only being an outsider in that period and being part of the punk movement and uh, later on the new wave movement but being part of those movements but also being a woman and whether you look back and go christ did i really put up with that well yes yeah but but again at the time again you just think this is normal, like going into the recording studio, you know, with the engineers and them looking with, at you with such contempt that you that you would even want to consider sitting by the mixing desk, you know, they, go go and put the kettle on, you know, go, and it's just like, oh yeah, right, you know, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, that's, and it's not until obviously time and things evolve that you think, my God, but at the time it's just, oh yeah, you know, I'm the only only girl here, I have to go make the tea or I have to. You know, and it, it's just like, wow, <laughs> you know. So, yes. Yeah. But I mean, it takes it takes power to go through those situations and, and come out of them in the right way. Yeah. Well, that's because it. it's so yeah. easy to say, OK, I'll do that. Yeah. But yeah, even when you know, I'd, I'd go and make the tea, but then I'd come back and make damn sure that I want I got what I wanted from the recording session, however much of a double fight it was, you know, to do it. Um, yeah, but yeah, it's not until you actually sit back and think about it that you realize, my God, you know, <laughs> yeah. Was, was in the recording studio, was that a fight from the start until you found, in a sense, found your feet and found your power? Yes, but again, it wasn't conscious, you know, it was just like, this is the process. I've got these 10 songs or whatever. I want to record them. I want to make an album. I've got to fight with my fellow musician. I've got to fight with the engineer. I've got to fight with the record company. But that's just part of the process. You know, I've got to fight when I go home and see my parents. I've got to fight when I see my brother. So there wasn't anything exceptional or unusual. And it's only from getting other perspectives and, and distance that you really, really see it. I mean, I listened to the sitting room this morning and I love the images it painted. And, and for me, it didn't feel of a different era. It just felt like oh. a, a, a wonderful uh, piece of art. And I just wondered when, when, I, when I listened to it, because I, I sort of, you know, as I said before, you do have the feeling that you're going into a different world when you're, when you're listening to, um, what you make, you know, your poetry and music together. And for me, I just wondered at the end of it, when I was listening to it, I wondered, I wondered if that alleviated by actually creating that, you had the feeling that it alleviated some of the problems um, that you had gone through in your life. Because as a, as a writer, when I write, it, there is something very powerful about instead of holding on to the pain, but bringing that pain it's not always pain, but bringing that pain into your work, 
is, is, is an incredible thing because in some way it gives you an understanding, a distance, it alleviates it slightly and you move on from it. And I wondered, because you were so young at that stage, whether that's something that you really experienced or whether it's something that you later looked later look back on and said that that worked. Yes, so much is in retrospect, you know, really, that it was so cathartic and, and, but at the time, yeah, I wouldn't have acknowledged that, you know, I wouldn't have said that. Um, it was for me about personally being able to gather up ideas and formulate them, put them together and release them. Yeah, there was always, um, it was always done on a shoestring, you know, and always done very quickly. And like I say, with these, the engineers like, what's this weird shit, you know, and all this stuff. So there was always quite a lot of pressure, but I just accepted it as normal. But yes, there was definitely a healing process with that. And, and in the, the formulating of it, not just the actual recording and releasing, but the gathering sounds and writing and, collaborating with with the musicians you know it was the whole process i mean do you work with music as well no just um just words so just writing okay. but the thing is when you write a screenplay i mean yeah. i haven't had any success but i'm on the on the verge i hope but i'm getting there and it's not about having the success it's about doing it it really doing. is although i want the success as well because yeah. financially yeah. Uh, but um you are painting pictures when you're writing a screenplay yes. You know, yeah. and so that's how I can associate with what you're doing with poetry um, and music together, because it is creating a whole world. And with a screenplay, you're also creating a world. You have yes. to create the world in which your screenplay takes place. So I think there is a sort of similarity with that. So I sort of get that totally. Yeah. Um, what's going to ask? Yeah, David Harrow was someone that you worked with then after the sitting room, and what attracted you to him as an artist? Because it seems an odd thing to sort of, what I read is you bumped into him and it was like, yeah, let's do something together, but not really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was again, the very punky new wave thinger. Oh, let's just do something, you know? But the thing is, he was a very um, confident, very, how can I put this politely? Self-assured <laughs> young man. And he just came up to me and he said, get rid of these wankers, you know, I can do much better than that. And it was like, whoa, okay. And- um, The word is cocky. <laughs> yeah, cocky, that's, yeah. And um, we had a very um, difficult relationship and have an even more difficult relationship now, but it was very difficult and very conflicting, which maybe I was attracted to for some weird reason, I don't know, but it was also very creative. And again, that's this weird thing of creativity. I mean, we could barely, stand being in the room together but when we were something would happen for these few numbers these very successful numbers which i'm eternally grateful for and i'm completely out of our control it was just something that happened and then we had absolutely nothing in common at all you know absolutely no way of commit well i had no way of communicating with him for sure um I mean, you created Sleeper of Metropolis, you created Our Darkness, yeah. you created those um, pieces which, are, in a sense, epitomized that era and became, you know, some of the sort of stalwarts of that era. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah. But you didn't make money, did you? No, no, not the money we should have, absolutely not. And again, that was naivety and 
Ja. Dat was the, or is, is still the nature of the music industry. You know, they just make it very clear to you that they're going to rip you off. And if you don't like it, or if you're not smart enough, or you don't have a great legal backing behind you, they're going to rip you off. And they did. They, they ripped us both off. And um, I really fought to get some of the money that we wrote. I don't know how it went with David. I asked him to cooperate with me on it because obviously the pair of us doing it together would have been a lot better, but he wasn't willing to for whatever reason. He moved to the States and had his life out there. Um, but no, we were owed hundreds of thousands of pounds, I think, to be honest, but we never saw it. No. Right. One of the really bad sides of the music industry, and, and um, I talked to someone about this the other day, it was Sam Brown, who is really a jazz singer. And because yeah. she had a pop hit, they wanted her to immediately have, called Stop, they wanted yeah. to have her immediately have another pop hit called yeah. you know, Go or whatever, That's just you know, do the same yeah. thing, basically. And um, that's when she suddenly grew up. Yeah. and realise this isn't really what I want in my life and not what I want to have. How difficult, though, was that for you? Because you'd really, by that stage, you had three albums, I think. You'd also had enormous um, success. And in a way, you should have been able to determine your own career. But I presume they were saying to you, right, we want another dark darkness. We want, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it, went into, it went into huge conflict, you know, enormous conflict. I mean, I remember going up to Virgin, the Virgin offices at one point, just to ask for a small advance to do a remix with David for, I think it was Our Darkness or Sleeper in Metropolis. And we needed something like, I don't know, two, three, four thousand pounds because, yeah, the studios were so expensive then. And, and it was like... <sighs> You know, oh, don't think. and then as I'm sitting there, you know, I got to know a couple of the girls and guys working there. This young woman walks in and pushes in front of everyone and goes to see someone. And um, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, that's so-and-so's uh, woman. He's having, she's just had a £350,000 advance to make an album, you know, this this babe who, who nobody ever heard of again, but was just the right person for them at the right moment, was given this money which never saw, as far as I know, the, the light of day. And yeah, we had to fight and kick and scream to get 2,000, two, 3,000 pounds to, to do a remix of a, of a track that had already been a hit around, around the world, you know? So um, yeah, it, and, and just this sense of injustice. I couldn't accept this sense of injustice that, yeah, they take their cut, but we want our cut. It's just fair, you know? and and so many musicians that I know and have known just don't want to get into the conflict of it you know that just don't want to enter into the whole legal thing one because it can break you financially which it did nearly with me do that and um yeah secondly it's just not in their nature I think to enter into these hugely conflictual situations but maybe again from my great Irish genes of my my mum or, or whatever, I just thought there's no way I'm, I'm going to accept this. You know? And I, I took it really to the high court and everything about it. About it. Um, but yeah, in the end, they still, as we see now, they've still got so much power and control. You know, they, they absorb every cultural movement that comes along and um, make it theirs. You know? So... 
I mean, I think we've seen it over the years many times, but it's not only breaking people um, financially, it's breaking them uh, creatively. Yeah, yeah. Because that stress going through that process, I mean, you know, that takes you away from what you're here and meant to do. Yeah. and your creativity so that i think is one of the well, that's it. the two the two are in complete conflict but it seems they have to work together you know the 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 creative side is completely the complete opposite of the money making machine that is the the music industry and unfortunately they always seem to come have to come back together in some way um yeah so how did you come back to yourself because i know then um I think his name was Charlie Morgan. Was a, a, a he was a um, a boyfriend of a friend of yours, I think. Yeah, and that's how yeah. you met him. And yeah. uh, he was also a musician, but you had never wanted or never thought. Sorry, that's the wrong word. You'd never thought about working together. And then you went off to Norway. Um, how did you bring um, your creativity back to yourself after that experience? Yeah, it was very, very, very hard. Um, I mean, I was completely broken by it emotionally and financially and in every way possible. I was completely destroyed by it. And I had the good fortune to be able to go and live in Norway for a period of time, which is somewhere so different from anywhere I'd ever been or or known. And it just came back again to the, the fundamentals, the basics of life. I mean, however comfortable and wealthy the people are out there in Norway, you know, which they are, they live very much in the natu- in, with, with the nature, with the seasons, with light, with dark, with heat, with cold. And it was just this, what really matters and, and what really mattered was sitting around a table or in the kitchen with friends, making food together, cooking together, eating together, yeah, lighting candles at three o'clock in the afternoon because it's so dark and just talking and and meeting musicians whose musicianship was beyond anything I'd ever witnessed before, who would just sit around in, in the lounge and play. And it was just like, that's what it's about. You know, that's what it's about, that creativity, that connection. And um, so we started working together. And slowly, yeah, slowly I found my way back to, to put in material together. But of course, it's gone through a few cycles of this, circles of this experience, which I never seem to learn from because I, I'm too, I, I, I believe people when they say, we're going to help with your career and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I think, oh, yeah, they must mean that. But of course, they don't. They mean they're going to make money for themselves. You know? So how, I I mean, you just mentioned that you've, that's happened a number of times because you have taken periods off, um, long periods off where you've obviously had to sort of find yourself and find your, or let's say sort of tank up again, you know, with creativity, be able to, um, to, to make something for yourself. So how do you get to a point um, where it, where it goes? I mean, that is, that for me is a, is, is a, I mean, obviously as a writer, you have writer's block, you know, and you have periods yeah. where nothing mm-hmm. comes and you can't force it, you know, you try and force it and it doesn't yeah. work, but yeah. there are, and there are other periods where it's just like, oh my God, I'm on a roll and it's just, this is fantastic and I'm loving it every minute of it. 
Um, but years is, is, for me, at the moment, seems to be an awful long time to, to step out and, and be able to sort of re-engage, if it's with nature, like in Norway, or re-engage with other creativity to maybe help your own creativity. So how, how does it empty out of you? Huh. Oh, I don't know, Stina, I can't, can't answer that. I mean, I live, I, I, and I think it comes back to your questions at the beginning of the interview about how, how I feel and how I've changed and things. I mean, I live with this incredible, unbearable intensity a lot of the time, just this over sensitivity to everything. The golden leaves on the tree now, you know, they just fill my heart till it wants to burst. Or when I was in, in the hospital and I was really, really sick and in the morning they opened the window of the hospital and the blackbird was singing outside the window every morning and it, it just lifted me to I can't explain you know I just and that goes the other way when things bad happen I just go boom down into this complete desolation um and yeah have to pull myself back out of it again and really really when you pull yourself out is it almost taking the desolation but putting it then (laughs) into your work do you know what I mean um because not all your work has that this darkness um but a lot of it has this sort of atmospheric, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the real word I'm, I'm searching for no, is. I know, it does have I know. that sort of element in it. And yeah. that's why I really love it though. <laughs> so I sort of appreciate maybe that when you have those dark times, it's almost the time, maybe that is the time where something's just about to come. Well, that's it. I mean, that's what, we were saying a little while ago that often it's from these darkest, bleakest periods in people's lives and in society that the most creative things happen. It's it's magical, really. It's really something, yeah, inexplicable. You can't you can't define why and how it happens. I think there's a certain um, honesty that you need to have to be able to do what you do and you've referenced it before with um uh how do you be honest to yourself Rilke and so on you know like you've 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 been there with 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 your words and other people's words um but this honesty um can be dangerous because if everyone has access to everything about you how do you protect yourself are you honest about everything about you or do you keep probably some not. things to yourself that probably. protect yourself? <laughs> yes probably I think we all do I, I think everybody does but but saying that soon it's interesting that now with the with the age of social media that we're in is that and, and especially when for example when you talk to young people about the word privacy you know you just see this blank on their face you, you say like well you know maybe you shouldn't give that information why not and then you I stop and I think yeah why not that's true that's how it is now you know that with social media and things whether it's true or not you know I mean it seems everybody's living the perfect life on Facebook and Instagram and and everything I'm not quite sure they are but so many of us have just uh, just um, lost our inhibitions and whether that's negative or, or positive 
just come out with whatever, you know, whatever they want, whatever they're feeling, whatever they want to say. Um, whether it's being honest or not, I don't know. I don't know if it is. Um, I'm sure there's many things I keep not secret, but don't talk about or have the need to talk about. Um, but I don't understand how people can uh, live together. I don't know how society works unless you're 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 honest with each other in a way. If that makes sense. Yeah, not. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning, I live in Germany. I've now got yeah. my dual nationality because of Brexit. Yes. Uh, yeah. And I've been here 27 years. I've always considered myself a European in any case. Yes. And one thing I love living in Germany, and I think it refers to most countries in Europe, if 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 except Britain. Um, and that is that there is no distinction between art. Art is art. So um, popular music is still seen as an art form. Yes. Um, and in Britain, it's seen as something a little bit lower. Um, so what interests me is that because you use words and you are best known today with people who are hearing those words in a second language. Yes. Um, and I wonder why that is. And maybe it's because they're having to concentrate more and actually take interest in them. Do you see what I mean? It's that yes. if you hear a piece of music or you hear um, a poem that you don't understand instantly, you've got yes. to go and look at it and you've got to go and Absolutely. study it. Is there yes. part of that in it? And, and how do you feel about how art is treated in Britain to how it is in Europe? I don't understand how anything's treated in Britain. Don't ask me anything about it. Um, I, I too got my <clears throat> Irish passport now that I travel with as, you know, a, a, a passionate European. And I am completely bewildered about <clears throat> not so much the British mentality, but the English mentality. You know, I think in Wales and, <clears throat> uh, sorry, in Scotland and maybe, I don't know. I think it's a, a bit different men mentality. So I can't answer anything about the English. I, I'm just um, furious <clears throat> about what they've done to a country that I love. And I don't mean that in a nationalistic or patriotic way, but I mean in the terroir, the earth, the nature of Britain is so, is so beautiful. <clears throat> and I, I love it so much and I'm attached to it. Um, but emotionally and politically <clears throat> and socially, I'm completely estranged from it so it's well i have to get a drink stephen sorry my, okay. <laughs> can you just excuse me one second while i grab a glass of water <clears throat> oh, a bottle of water as it is here yeah I've only got one final question in any case, because um, okay. I mean, I know that Brexit isn't going to save anyone and won't save anyone and it's probably ruined a lot of people. Um, yeah. um, um, but that's, you know, that's gone, that's over and uh, we, we all have to deal with it in some way. Um, but art is going to be here to stay. And art is something that is incredibly important in the lives of everyone, whether they realise it or not. It is around them. It is yeah. everything we mm see and touch and feel and hear and everything and it is something that accompanies our whole lives and it's something that is in our lives but is it something that can save humanity that's a hell of a question <laughs> art it can save me 
and I, and it can save many people I know. I don't know whether it can save humanity. I don't know. I think it's um, a secondary thing to what maybe Greta Thunberg can save humanity. Maybe Boris Johnson can destroy humanity or Donald Trump or Bolsonaro or whoever, or maybe we will just destroy ourselves. I mean, ha, oh, save humanity. I think we're on a slow, long, slow course to annihilation, to be honest, to be got rid of because we are very bad. We are a very bad species, I think. And um, I think slowly things are happening that, you know, the, the earth doesn't need us. The planet doesn't need us. So I don't even know if we're worth saving. Are we worth saving? Do we need well, to I save? agree with you on, the, on to the extent that maybe we are very bad species, but there are yeah. good specimens amongst there are bad species. Spot. And they're, I they're just not, appreciate the fact that you have created so much wonderful art over your life. Um, and I have to say, just finally, during COVID, your music was one of the things that saved me and uh, two friends of mine, uh, a couple who have three children, who were my bubble during COVID. And we spent many hours um, dancing and uh, <laughs> around the kitchen table in wow. their flat to your music. So, wow, Anne great. Clark, <laughs> thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. for the interview. And I'd love to come back to you one day and talk about your later work because we concentrated so much on your sure. early life. I'd love and, that. Uh, maybe I can come back and do that at another time. Thank and you. I'd love to discover your work too, definitely. Oh, I'd send you some. I'll send you a script. Please. There you go. Fantastic. I'd love Brilliant. that. All right. Okay, Thank Speak you very again. much. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y.com and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.